This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic, the leader in keg spear quality and innovation. Let our veteran technical support staff provide you with the training and information you need to safely service your kegs. For more information, visit micromatic.com. We call it that the Russian roulette installation. It's not a matter of if it's going to break, it's just a matter of when it's going to break. Today on the show, Dan Stromberg joins us to discuss industry best practices for glycol system piping. You'll learn how to balance your system, how to size headers for correct flow rates and velocity, which pipe materials to consider, why the ubiquitous solenoid valve is a bad choice, and more. I bet a lot of brewers don't think about balancing glycol lines until after they've experienced tanks that don't cool properly. How about describing what I mean by an unbalanced system, the problems related to that type of installation, and how to go about balancing a system? So when you have an unbalanced system, normally what you have is that the pipe, the supply and return follow the same path and what you get is that the first tank from the supply side have the shortest uh, run from the shiller out to the tank and then it also will have the shortest run from uh, the tank back to the shiller so in that way if you look on the linear foot that the pipe have to flow is very short and then the last tank on the system have the longest way to go for the supply and it also have the longest way to go for the return so of course uh, the first, that tank will have harder to get the same uh, glycol flow as the first one so this is what we call an unbalanced design and the best way to to deal with this is to try to see do a balance design that's called first in last out and what we mean with that is that the first tank that get glycol should be the last tank that's going back to the uh, shiller so in that way what you get is that the tank on the supply if that had the shortest run on the supply out to the tank it have the longest run back to the shiller and what we also then get with this design is that the tank that have the longest run of pipe out to the tank is going to get the shortest run back to the shiller so we literally get about the same linear footage for the flow for the glycol to flow totally among all the tanks and now we don't have problems that one tank get colder than another one that have easier to get flow and so on 
the thing you can do, of course, is putting on balancing valve, but now it starts to get expensive and complicated and, and so on. This is a simple way to solve the problem. So for those folks that already have sort of an unbalanced system in place, um, I, I've heard them referred to as circuit setters. I, I assume that's what you mean. You could put that on at each individual tank to control the flow if you're kind of already stuck with an unbalanced system, right? Yes. You, you put on what's called a balancing valve. And that balancing valve, to do it correct, should really be put on the return side. So you don't put it in going into the tank. You really put it on the, the outlet from the tank back to the return. And in that way, you can regulate how much flow each tank gets. But it's costly. It's a lot of, of uh, work to balance the whole thing. So you spend more money and you need to spend more time on it also. Yeah, and I, I guess you also probably want to avoid situations where you're um, creating pressure on the return side of your tank too, right? Yes, exactly. Let's talk about header sizing. How should a brewer go about sizing a new glycol header or determining if they could add more tanks to an existing header? So it's uh, very simple, really, if you think of it. It's not so complicated. What you need to know is how much flow each of your tanks, each of your fermenters need, and each of your bright tanks. And then you also normally have a wort cooler or maybe even have a, a, the walking cooler that's run on the glycol thing. So what you then try to figure out so if we go from the basic, you take your fermenter, you go to your tank manufacturer and you ask him, how much flow do I need per jacket to get my tank to work? And then he normally should be able to give you that one. If he can't give you, there is a golden rule in between the thumbs that normally works. And that is for smaller tanks and so on. You go with uh, 10 gallons per minute if you have a really big one. Maybe you even need 15 gallons per minute per jacket. And now when you then add up your all your flow, you get the total flow rate. So you take the flow rate needed for all your fermenters, all your brights, heat exchanger and so on. And now you need know how much flow is going to be needed for the pipe to handle this. But there is a twist on this. Not all of your tanks are going to be calling for cooling at the same time. You might have one tank that's are in, in you cleaning that tank for now. You would have some that uh, you are on a path filling. You might have some that have reached their temperature and so on. So you ask yourself, okay, how many maximum will be calling for cooling at the same time? And then you take that flow number and, okay, for example, if we just draw the number, say that it's 100 gallons per minute. Okay, with 100 gallons per minute, what pipe size do I need? And to define the pipe size, uh, there is a golden rule also here. And it's in fact an ASHRAE recommendation this time on system design. So what you try to do is you try to look on the economy on pumping this flow. 
that means that if you have too small of a pipe size and try to force too much flow, too much gallon per minute through the pipe, you need to increase your speed. And when you increase the speed, the pressure drop uh, increases. So the golden rule is this. If you have just the standard pumps from the shiller unit, you try to aim on five feet per second in speed or less. And if you have a variable speed pump, you can go up to seven and a half feet per second because that pump's gonna adjust for uh, the different need. So now when we have this, uh, let me explain a little bit on, on what happens if you try to use too small of a pipe. If you, for example, go from five feet per second in speed in your pipe to seven and a half feet per second in your pipe, that's an increase of the velocity with 50%. And if you say, okay, I'm going to run seven and a half feet instead of five feet, I increase with 50%. The big surprise to many is that your pressure drop will in not increase with 50%. Your pressure drop will increase with 225%. That means that now you need maybe bigger pumps uh, or they need to work harder and, and you're going to need more energy and you need, you need more effort to pump around. So this is where we found the sweet spot. If you keep yourself around this, you get most bang for the bucks. Dan, I've seen a lot of different kinds of pipe used for glycol systems over the years. Could you talk about some of the most common pipe materials and mention the pros and cons of each? Okay. So Let's start with the metal pipes. Uh, copper is a very common material, but as you know, works really great. But the disadvantage is the thermal conductivity of the pipe. It really leads the really good. So you definitely need a lot of insulation on. It's also very expensive, very desirable for thieves. Uh, and that's one of the negatives on that pipe. But otherwise, normally a lot of people can install copper. Carbon steel is another material, but you need to paint that and surface treat it so you don't get any corrosion on the outside. It's heavy, it's time consuming to install. And of course, there, you know, you of course need insulation. Stainless steel, some of the breweries, they go with stainless steel because they have stainless steel all over the place. But really, it's a little bit overkill for this material. And also here, you need really good welder to have this installed because if you do a bad weld, you will get corrosion on the inside uh, rather quick on that one. Um, also here, needs to be well insulated to avoid um, condensation and mold and also corrosion. When we look on uh, plastic materials, we have one material that people probably think of, and that's PVC. PVC is not the material to use for glycol systems. Uh, it's very easy to understand when you know the pipe material. The lowest temperature limit for PVC is 32 degree F. 
And that means that normally in your brewery, you're running 28, maybe all the way down to 23 on your glycol. So you're outside the operating limit for the material. And you also have that, that uh, PVC is not resistant to uh, propylene glycol. You will not find any uh, producer of PVC pipe on the market that would recommend it for propylene glycol because it's not resistant. Uh, the propylene glycol act like a uh, stress agent. That means any stress, any water hammer, anyone comes close or bump the whole thing and you have probably even quicker than you had without propylene glycol. You have a crack and you have a failure of your pipe. Also, if you have PVC installed and something happened and you, cont uh, you contact your insurance company, the insurance company will not cover because they realize you used the wrong material. Uh, other plastic material you can use, you have uh, something called CoolFit ABS. CoolFit ABS is a specialized uh, ABS material. It's not the drain and waste piping you think of normally for ABS. This is for pressurized fluid, and it can handle temperatures down to minus 58 compared to the PVC that only can go to 32 degree F. So that material uh, is an excellent material to use for this one. Uh, there is polyethylene, like P100. That, uh, by the way, ABS is solvent cemented and quick and easy to install, but it needs to be insulated. Uh, P100, near here you weld it, and uh, normally a very decent cost of the material, but you have more expansion contraction than other plastics. Also here, insulation is needed, and you need normally to rent welding equipment and so on. PEX, some people use PEX for this one. The disadvantage with the PEX is that it's hard to find stiff, straight pipes. So it normally comes on a roll and it gets not so beautiful to install. It's rather, uh, look rather messy out there. And it only have mechanical couplings. Uh, so you can't get a fully welded or fully solvent cemented system. Size range is a little bit limited on these also. When it comes to pre-insulated piping, uh, that's really a way to go and make it easy for you. There is one that's called CoolFit ABS Lite. That one have an Armaflex insulation already on. And the one that we see in a lot of breweries is CoolFit ABS Plus. That material is a pre-insulated material with both pipes and fittings pre-insulated. It's maintenance-free, it's energy efficient, it's very easy to install. Can also be power washed, chemically washed, have very low expansion rate, and it's totally UV resistant. Uh, you're probably gonna see a lot of these, the Coolfit ABS Plus, they recognize as the black pipe that you see out on, on breweries, and there's a lot of breweries using that. Okay. Dan, insulation shouldn't be, but often is an afterthought for some startup brewers. Tell us why insulation is so important and what happens when you end up with even very small gaps in the insulation? So with the insulation, that's normally the shock if you afford to do it yourself. 
and so on. If you take insulation materials and add it up and get it installed on your piping, you're going to see that sometimes the insulation itself costs more than the actual piping you have. But if you do it yourself and you don't uh, seal it so you get a vapor type system, even one broken vapor seal, and now you have a flow in between your pipe and the outside. And now you have easily then moisture, even ice buildup. If you have metal pipe, you get corrosion, easily get mold. And of course, you don't want to have mold in your brewery. And um, it just takes one vapor seal on a whole system, and then it slowly starts to break down. For example, ice can then start breaking, building under the insulation, and then start its way, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So normally then you end up with a lot of, of maintenance work, and you, get, you lose your efficiency because it don't insulate it as it should be. Coming up, a better alternative to solenoid valves and more. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic. In 2015, Micromatic introduced the concept of a 10-year, 10-color coating of CO2 valves as a tool for brewers to proactively separate kegs which are due for spear service or replacement. Industry veterans John Graber and Steve Brott are available for workshops and presentations to ensure safe and effective maintenance of your Micromatic spears. For more information, visit Micromatic.com. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District St. Paul Minneapolis Pig Roast is November 9th. District New York meets November 11th at Triumph in Princeton, New Jersey. Two districts have meetings on November 13th. District Western New York meets at Bottomless Brewing, and District Northern California meets at East Brother Brewing Company. District Rocky Mountain holds its fall meeting November 14th at Crazy Mountain in Denver. District Milwaukee gathers in Brookfield November 15th. The District Ontario Annual General Meeting is November 16th at the Molson Coors Pub. District St. Louis is at Kirkwood Station on the 16th. And District Southeast is at Isla Mirada Brewery in Fort Pierce, where they're holding a special one-day engineering course November 17th, followed by their fall meeting on the 18th. And don't miss the Gluten, Beer, and Related Regulations webinar November 28th, Check the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Do you have any um, rules for... Uh, typical ratings or thicknesses of insulation for for glycol pipe? For glycol pipe, there is also here, there is a minimum pipe insulation thickness from uh, ASHRAE and it's building on, uh, it's an ASHRAE code and it's called the 90 
1.1-2010. It's an energy standard. And that one is just an energy standard. So just to have it as uh, make sure that people do efficient system and don't waste money down the drain. Uh, you're looking on a glycol system with sizes under uh, one inch, half inch thickness, and uh, everything up to about eight inch, you need one inch thickness. And uh, this is based on uh, insulation with a conductivity of 0 0.20 to 0 0.26 uh, uh, BTU per inch. Uh, so that's the uh, thermal conductivity value. If you have other values, then it's going to be others. But that's just for energy efficient. But you really need to insulate for condensation control because if you... It could be that you follow this, but you still get condensation because you have a high humidity, yeah, you have a high ambient temperature. When you look in a brewery, in bigger breweries, we put the cellar where we have the fermentation in a separate room, okay? But in smaller breweries, what do we do? We have a brew house and we have next to that the fermentation tanks. And if you look on the brew house, you add heat inside the building and you also add moisture. So you tend to be really high on humidity and high on ambient temperature. And humidity plays a huge role in how much insulation you need, as do uh, temperature. But in fact, humidity plays a bigger role than, in, in fact, the temperature do. Let's get into glycol piping at the fermenter. Could you talk about the difference between parallel and serial piping for jackets on fermentation vessels? I sure can. So there's two ways normally to pipe a fermenter. And um, the general rule and, and that you should do is that the cold glycol should go in in the jacket on the lower connection and out on the uh, upper connection. But normally these days on the tanks, you have uh, mostly two or more jackets per tank. Normally you have one jacket down on the cone and then you can have two, one jacket up on the, the circular way on the uh, tank and even maybe two, three, even more than that. And um, one way to feed is, and the best way to feed is really what we call a parallel feed. So you take your cold glycol, you go down and you feed it in to the lowest po uh, point on your jacket down on the cone, and then extract it on the top connection on that cone, and then uh, on send it back up to the header. Uh, the same thing with the other jackets. You feed in on the low side and out on the top side. With this so-called parallel feed, you get the same temperature glycol into all jackets because they all feed the same temperature in. What some people do, and I don't really recommend this, they feed in to the cone, but instead of feeding back out to the, uh, up to the header, from the um, 
return, they take the return from that cone and they feed that glycol in to the supply on the next jacket. And maybe from that jacket, when it comes out, feed into the next jacket. So really what happens here is that you're going to get the coldest glycol going in in the lower jacket on the cone, and then it slowly heats up, and then you feed a higher temperature glycol to the next jacket, and even a higher one to the top. So literally what you get, if you look on the tank, you get the lowest temperature on the glycol in the bottom, and you get the warmest glycol on the top. Uh, not so efficient, and people who have tried both, they are surprised what a big difference it makes. Yeah, it also has the disadvantage of if you ever want to operate the, the jackets independently, you can't do that, you know? That's correct. That's correct. With the, with the parallel feed, you can put the valves on to the thing. So you can, for example, if you do a half batch, close the top. If you have the batch under the top jacket, you can close off the top jacket. Because if you feed the top jacket and you don't have fluid on the inside of the tank up to that jacket, that jacket's going to make the tank cold and you could get a chance of ice building on the inside of the tank up there. And then after a while, it gets so heavy, so it falls down in the beer that are during fermentation. That's right. Okay, what type of valves should folks be using for glycol delivery at the ferment at the fermentation vessels? You're going to see a lot of solenoid valves here, and there is a better way to do it because also when you talk to the people and you valve and breweries, where is the big, one of the biggest problem? It's the solenoid valve. Normally, with the solenoid valve for it to work, they have a lot of small servo channels, tiny channels that act as a servo for the valve to really function. But if you have any dirt or debris in your line, it's not cleaned up, that gets stuck in these channel and it don't work. And also they have, uh, looks like a shorter lifespan in general. And uh, the disadvantage with a solenoid valve, if you want to service a valve, you need to put a manual valve before the solenoid and after the solenoid, otherwise you can't service the valve whatsoever. What we instead recommend is to go with an actuated ball valve. Uh, with an actuated ball valve, you can have an actuator that's electric or pneumatic. Uh, here, you don't need to put a manual valve before or after because if something happened with the actuator, you can take it off and you can still have the whole thing working without any interruption. Most of these valves are also manual overrides, so you can go there and manually operate these. Another benefit with using a ball valve, it's not sensitive, as I said, to the debris and so on, because you have a full port. And if we, for example, have elected to go with a one-inch drop for our tank, just as an example, if you have a solenoid valve installed, that solenoid valve in one inch have so much flow restriction, so you don't probably get the flow that you expected to get. 
for an example, if you want the same flow as your pipe uh, and it's one inch, you need a two inch solenoid valve. And that's a surprise for many. So actuated bulb valves is definitely something I can recommend and you will have almost no problems at all uh, because it's really, it's a workhorse and it works and you get great flows with it. Dan, what are some of the most common mistakes uh, you've seen in breweries? Some of the common mistakes, I mean, probably the most common one is the choice of wrong material, like using PVC. And, and as we call it, and just to know, our company invented the solvent cement for PVC for over 60 years ago. We are one of the biggest PVC manufacturers in the world. And I'm saying this together with all other producers out there. Uh, PVC, it will not work. And we call it that the Russian roulette installation. It's not <laughs> a matter of if it's going to break, it's just a matter of when it's going to break. Other things that's typical uh, we see, uh, of course, very, very bad with insulation. Anytime you see water condensation on your pipe or ice, you are throwing money down in the drain every day, every month, every year. And that's a lot of money you're throwing away there. Another thing we see is too small of header pipe. That means that people take a shortcut. They saw, oh, there's a two-inch connection on the shiller and there's a three-quarter-inch connection on the tank. So there must be a header that's two-inch and there must be a drop piping that's uh, three-quarter-inch. That's not really how it works. So by undersizing your header, you restrict the flow. You don't get the efficiency of your system as you should have. Um, other things. How many times haven't I been out where they connected the tanks in the wrong way? That means that the supply is connected to the top port of the um, jacket instead of the other way, or even connected wrong out by the shiller. We see systems that are not vented. That means that there is no high point vent, so they have airlocks in the system. We see people connecting with hoses in between and the hoses kinks, so you don't get uh, flow in between. There is tons of, of different things. And uh, ask yourself, go out and, and just follow your uh, glycol piping. Do I have the connections on the shell in the right way? What is the flow direction? Put some error markets on your piping. Follow the whole thing. Make sure that your actuated valves are on the supply and your manual valve is on the return. And then make sure that everything is connected the right way. Another thing we, we see, we see systems where you have no loop back from your supply back to the return. And why do you need that? You need a valve and you need a loop back from the supply to the return because you want to loop back some flow back to the return. Because if all of your tanks is satisfied with the uh, flow and say that, okay, 
I am temperature, my temperature is raised, so they close all the valves. What's going to happen? Then you suddenly have your pump is still pumping out at the shiller, but there is no flow that can go around because all the valves are closed. So you deadheading your pump, and suddenly you have a pump that's uh, heating up the glycol, the piping breaks, the pump breaks, and you add, you dump suddenly all your uh, glycol or so on, and you have a lot of problems, a lot of money to spend. Are you okay with omitting the bypass valve there in applications where the process pump is on a variable drive and there's a you know pressure transducer in the line, so it's it's knowing to turn the pump uh, all the way down? Or do you still want to see a bypass there? You could. The, the thing what's good with the bypass is this. A lot of the Schiller unit is, uh, have this uh, bypass valve that opens if something happens and let it back, back to the reservoir. But the thing is, if this happens now, say that you have a warm day and uh, or you do some maintenance work, whatever, and you don't use this. What you're going to have is that the fluid slowly, especially if it's not well insulated, the fluid's going to eat up in your header and the whole system out there. And when you then suddenly need the fluid and you open up, you're not going to have any cold fluid. And then suddenly you get all this warm fluid back to your shiller. And if your reservoir is not big enough, it could be that it takes a long time before it gets down on the temperature on the fluid again. So I prefer that you always have flow going in around the building and goes in the pipe all the time. It don't need to be much, but as long as it moves. And this is the case. If you have a well-insulated piping, even if it's not calling for cooling, you will get then the pump pumping out fluid and the fluid will come back and haven't lost anything. So in that way, it's just the cost of the pump that circulate the fluid. But if it's not well-insulated, that's a different story because now you're going to heat up and you're going to run your shell even more. That was Dan Stromberg here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about engineering and utilities, consider attending the Master Brewers Brewery Engineering course in September. Details are available under the Education tab at mbaa.com. Got a question for Dan? Find him at community.mbaa.com. 130 years ago, Master Brewers was built on the concept of brewers helping each other out so we could all make the best possible beer. That's still true to this day, and it's where a lot of the camaraderie in this industry originated. Master Brewers' award-winning Ask the Brewmasters is the best place to go for troubleshooting, where you'll find the industry's only discussion forum that's moderated for technical accuracy by a team of experts. See what everyone else is talking about at community.mbaa.com. United, we brew. Did you enjoy today's episode? Would you like us to keep making more? If so, there's a really simple way you can let us know. Subscribe, rate, and review the Master Brewers Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm running